This is episode 239 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported in part by listeners just like you who join our listener community on Patreon. Explore all the benefits and join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. And stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Mary Fassell. I'm a professor of the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. I'm the author of Vernacular Bodies, about how people thought about reproduction in early modern England, and Long Before Roe, A Long History of Abortion from Antiquity to Antibiotics. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Thomas Gresham was a really important, very rich merchant and adventurer in the Tudor age. He wasn't as famous, he's not as as well known now as people like Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh. He served four major Tudor monarchs, Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary Tudor, and finally Elizabeth I, leading up to the age of Shakespeare. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Thomas Gresham served as royal agent to the king in England under Edward VI, Henry VIII, Mary, and Elizabeth I. A hugely influential man of his time, Thomas Gresham's legacy continues today at Gresham College, the university he founded in 1597 when William Shakespeare was 33 years old. Competing with the likes of Oxford and Cambridge at the time, Gresham College was unique not only because universities themselves were a new concept in England, but because Gresham College chose to teach students in English, whereas Latin was the accepted language of universities at the time. Here today to share with us how Gresham College was founded and what the first classes were like there is our guest and professor at Gresham College, Valerie Shrimplin. Valerie Shrimplin holds the title of Emeritus Senior Research Associate at Gresham College, London. She was awarded her PhD for her research entitled Sun Symbolism and Cosmology in Michelangelo's Last Judgment on the Influence of Copernican Heliocentricity on Michelangelo's Frescoes in the Sistine Chapel. This was published as a monograph in 2000. She has lectured and published on the 16th century, including on Thomas Gresham, as well as Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and also on the influence of astronomy and cosmology on art and architecture. You can learn more about Valerie and find links to her work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Valerie. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm very glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. Why did Thomas Gresham want to start this college in the first place? Well, so Thomas Gresham was a really important, very rich merchant, financier and adventurer in the Tudor age in the 16th century. He wasn't as famous, he's not as as well known now as people like Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh, but he was really important at the time. He was very interested in trade and finance, and he served four major Tudor monarchs, Henry VIII, Edward VI, 
Mary Tudor, and finally Elizabeth I, leading up to the age of Shakespeare. He was very keen on education because his his merchant, um, as a merchant and a financier, and also as an ambassador, he's, he travelled to the Netherlands and he got especially in contact with the new, what was called the new learning, the new Protestant ideas in places like Antwerp. And this all contributed to the new age and the age of Shakespeare and what we regard as, as modern Europe. So, in fact, because he served these four monarchs, he, he kind of kept his head down and kept it on because, of course, some were, some were Protestant and some were Catholic. But he managed this. So, but the real reason he wanted to start the college, uh, the precipitating factor, was that his son and heir died. Now, when his son died in 1564, aged 17 or 18, he had this vast wealth and, and quite honestly didn't really know what to do with it. He founded the Royal Exchange in London. That still exists, although not the original building. And it was modelled on the Bourse in Antwerp, where trade could take place, which was really the founding of the Stock Exchange. But after that, because his son has died, he turned to the idea of, of founding a college in London. And the Royal Exchange is opposite the Bank of England in the City of London. The college itself has, has occupied different buildings, as we shall see. So how was Gresham College different from other colleges or universities at this time? It was really different because the, most of the universities in, in Europe had grown out of the monasteries. They were about training priests, the earliest one, uh, not counting sort of Plato and Socrates under the olive trees in ancient Athens. But in medieval Europe, Bologna, Paris, Oxford and Cambridge were mostly founded in around the 12th century for training priests and so on. And their syllabus was based, apart from the, the divinity, was based on, on a range of subjects called the quadrivium and the trivium. That was astronomy, music, geometry, arithmetic, grammar, logic, rhetoric, these sort of subjects. But Gresham College was very different from that. What Gresham wanted to do was to bring in some practical learning. So, for example, when astronomy was taught, it was astronomy for navigation. It was practical astronomy to help the merchants find their way around. He kind of dropped things like grammar and logic as well, and he added in law and medicine, these practical subjects, and that's why it was so different. It wasn't technically a university at the time. It was a higher education institution. It was the first higher education institution in London. And there was a kind of rivalry with Oxford and Cambridge, who, who would rather he had left his money to them. But his plan was basically to set it up in, in a private way, not a lot of other benefactors would sort of donate money to an Oxford or a Cambridge college or found an Oxford or Cambridge college. For example, Henry the Henry VIII's mother did that. But what Gresham did was to, he had a very large house in the centre of London, built round a courtyard, rather like an Oxford or Cambridge college. And his plan was to turn this into a college like the colleges in Oxford and Cambridge, and to fund it by the income from the Royal Exchange, which brought him a lot of money. He also had vast numbers of, of manors across the country, especially in Norfolk, lots of big country houses, houses and country estates in Antwerp as well. 
So that was really how it was so different. And one of the main things, apart from this practical aspect, was that he insisted that everything should be taught in English as well as in Latin. The universities across Europe at the time were, were doing everything in Latin, which was a kind of lingua franca. Everybody spoke Latin, so people could come and join in and travel from Italy to England or Paris, for example. But having things delivered in English as well meant that merchants and people like that could have access. Everything was taught in both languages until about 1820, when Latin was abolished, which is one of the reasons I'm not speaking to you in Latin now. So who were the first professors teaching these subjects at the college? Do we know who the first set of teachers were? Yes, we do, because it's all actually minuted. There was He left his money to the Corporation of the City of London and the Mercer's Livery Company. And they used to meet regularly in something called the Joint Grand Gresham Committee. And that still meets. I used to attend meetings of it when, when I worked at, when I ran Gresham College. And the minute books, they're called the repository, but they still survive from the 16th century. The first entries were in 1596. Gresham had died in 1579, but they couldn't sort it all out until his wife died as well because she wanted the money um, to go to her sons rather than to a college. But in these minute books, we can see that there were seven professorships, so we know exactly who they were and who their names are. And some of the earliest ones, there were astronomers like Brerwood, Gunter and Gellibrand, there was a famous musician, James Bull. And then in the early centuries, there were even people like Sir Christopher Wren and, and Hook, who were well known as Gresham professors in the early days. What about the buildings that were there for Gresham College? Are any of the original sites still there in London today? Yes, they are. The original house was Gresham's, and that was demolished a long time ago. In fact, the the land that was his house, his house was sold off in 1768. And when it was sold off, there's a huge skyscraper there now called the Tower 42. Um, but when it was sold off, the subjects, that's astronomy, music, geometry, divinity, law, physics, and rhetoric, these subjects were allocated different parts of that building. But once it was sold off, it, it was sort of the, the college was held, the meetings were held in, in a corner of the Royal Exchange from about 1666. It, it burnt down in the Great Fire of London. And the 18th century, there was a bit of a lull in the college. And some people protested that the money that Gresham had le left wasn't being used for what it was meant for. But it had a revival in towards the end of the 18th century. And in 1842, a special building was made, a purpose-built building, which seated a, a couple of hundred people. And so into the 19th century, it was doing much better. And then towards the end of the 19th century, with the rise in education, interest in education and so on, then there was more sort of more interest in it. And so by the 20th century, this building that had been built in 1842 was going really well. But then it was closed down because of fire precautions. And then we had the two world wars. But since the Second World War, it's actually been held, been located 
in a building called Barnard's Inn Hall. Now, Barnard's Inn Hall belonged to the Mercers, the livery company that's always sponsored the college. And they have allowed the college to be based there since the 1980s. And it's in a building, a, t- a tiny building that was described as new in 1429. So it's a delightful old wood, wood panelled building. It's mentioned by Charles Dickens in Great Expectations. But of course, this isn't big enough. So over the last um, few decades, meetings and lectures have been held in the Mansion House, at the Guildhall, in the Museum of London, although that's not available at the moment. And so it's been held in different places. And so the change from what Gresham originally intended, which was to use his great big house around a courtyard like an Oxford or Cambridge college funded by the Royal Exchange, has changed rather. But the college still goes on providing about 130 free lectures a year to the public. And of course, now with online and, and live streaming, the lectures are, are really, really flourishing with thousands of people watching live or watching online later on, as well as some attendance in person. Of course, this was all sort of messed up rather during COVID, but they do have meetings taking place now in person. Now, you mentioned that universities originally started out as a pathway to working in religious institutions and that that was the foundation of that education platform and that Gresham College was not only different from those, but also different from what Oxford and Cambridge had become during the 16th century as well. But I wonder specifically about the purpose of students going to the college in terms of the degrees that they were there to earn. Was this a degree conferring institution where they following some specific career path when they showed up at Gresham College? Yeah, we don't know very much about the original students and we don't know very much about the actual degree awarding powers. Nowadays in in UK education, um, degree awarding powers, taught degree awarding powers, research degree awarding powers are something very specific that have to be applied for and gained with permission from the government. Um, So we don't have a lot of details, but we do know that the lectures were repeated in English and in Latin. And it was more than, you know, sort of nowadays, the idea that you go to a degree to get a a better job or or preferably you go to, to do a degree to educate yourself or become more cultured. But actually, I think really behind Gresham's idea, especially I mentioned astronomy as an example, It was to do your job better. It was for merchants and so on and financiers to go there to learn so that they could do what they were doing more effectively. I think that was coupled those sort of subjects and mathematics and geometry. And also I mentioned that law and medicine were taught. So so these were the idea to improve performance. But also the the sort of more purely educational or cultural side of things was things like rhetoric and music, although music was regarded as a branch of mathematics because it is is so mathematical, as as I'm sure people are aware. So I think that the the range was enormous and it did sort of that, that idea carried on when Christopher Wren and Robert Hooke were members of the college in the in the mid seventeenth century. They actually had a breakaway, which founded the Royal Society in sixteen sixty, 
And that was really important. In fact, the Royal Society has flourished much more than Gresham College in a way, because the Royal Society is really the foundation for teaching science using experimental methods, working out a hypothesis, testing a hypothesis through through experiments. So these ideas and the way of teaching, I think it had genuinely originated at, at Gresham College. And the college and Sir Thomas himself can take credit for that. You mentioned that Gresham College was quite a contrast in the world of universities and colleges. And as you mentioned, was the first higher education institution in London by this point in history. So I wonder what the general reputation was for Gresham College. How was their new practical focus and teaching in English and these rather you know innovative and certainly very different ways of approaching education received by people in London? I think they would have been received well. Firstly, when Gresham died and then his wife died, Oxford and Cambridge argued to overturn Gresham's will of 1575 because they wanted the money to be invested invested there. But the fact that of the original seven professors, three were from Oxford, three were from Cambridge, and the music professor had degrees from both Oxford and Cambridge. Now, the fact that they could get those shows how highly it was regarded from the very beginning. And also, the Professorship of Astronomy, for example, was the first chair in astronomy in Europe. It predated the chair in astronomy at Oxford and the one at Cambridge. And Gresham was really interested in astronomy. There are actually stars and comets on his on his coat of arms. So I think that, you know, the whole idea was that those who attended and those who delivered the lectures were were really very high quality. In the 18th century, I'm afraid, it declined rather. And there is a story, if if we've got time to tell a quick story. I think we would love to hear a quick story. (laughs) Yeah, that in the 18th century, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's it's a legendary, that in the 18th century, there was a professor giving his talk and there was only one person in the audience and then when, but he thought, well, he'd carry on anyway. So he carried on anyway. And he was, he finished his lecture and he was just going to leave when the chap in the audience said, well, don't go because I'm on next, <laughs> which shows <laughs> what a, what a problem the audiences were in the 18th century. You know, you asked me before about the seven, the early 17th century and the late 16th century in Shakespeare's when it was, it, popular just across the river from Shakespeare's Globe. But in the 18th century, there was a love. But this was resuscitated, as I said, in the 19th century. And of course, nowadays, with online as well, the number of views of of the lectures runs into tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands. Gresham College was looking at, had recorded lectures for, for a couple of decades, but was looking at delivering lectures live. And that was just coming into practice just before the COVID pandemic, so that when COVID came along, Gresham College was ready to undertake it. And if you look at their lectures online, there's a huge library of two and a half thousand lectures that that can still be watched, including some some by me. And so this sort of carries on. It it's had some lulls, but it's um it's flourishing at the moment. That that stick with itness that you talked about with the professor that was I'm going to finish my lecture yeah. no matter. <laughs> it, that's a really great spirit I think for the for the college to have and how neat to see it move through the centuries quite literally. 
Now, yes. Valerie, I know we would love to learn more about Thomas Gresham as well as the history of the college. So could you give us some of your recommendations about some books or resources we should use as a starting point for learning more about this topic? Yes, there are, there are several books available. I mean, you can look up um, the Thomas Gresham entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography by Ian Blanchard. Or there were a couple of books in the late 90s. One is a collection of essays by Francis Amos Lewis, Sir Thomas Gresham and Gresham College. Or there is the book by Richard Charters, who was the Bishop of London until recently, and David Vermont, A Brief History of Gresham College, which was brought out in 1997 on the um, 500th anniversary of the foundation of the college. Or if you want a sort of a, a, a quick summary with a picture book, there's a book that I wrote, actually, called Sir Thomas Gresham and His Vision for Gresham College. And that's only about 100 pages with lots and lots of pictures. And it's available through the college and it should be on their website. Otherwise, you could email inquiries at gresham.ac.uk. And lastly, uh, Professor John Guy from Cambridge has recently written a book about Sir Thomas Gresham and what is known as Gresham Law about uh, finance. That is much longer and more detailed, and I believe that's available on Amazon. Those are excellent resources. Thank you so much for pointing us in that direction. And don't worry if you're listening and unable to jot these down quickly while Valerie is sharing them with us. We will have a complete list to both these resources and the lectures that she's mentioned from Gresham College available in the show notes for today's episode. So you can go there and find all of those quickly and easily. Now, Valerie, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Yes, you've you forewarned me about this, so I've given it a great deal of thought. I could choose my own book on Michelangelo, or I really Pride and Prejudice comes to mind as one of my favourites, but I think I would have to plump for Tolstoy's War and Peace. If I was on a desert island, once I'd waded again through Shakespeare and the Bible, I, I'd need something that would have to last me. Now, war and peace, people think is quite daunting. I, but to be honest, I had it as a school prize and I couldn't get into it. And I didn't read it till I was in my 50s. But actually, when I read it, although some of it's heavy going, it's absolutely brilliant. And I thought, why on earth didn't I read this sooner? <laughs> so so I would really recommend it. it. It is heavy going in places, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. But I would advise your listeners to get hold of a copy that's got the names and the families because they're all called, called by complicated Russian names. And if you've got one that, that lists the families and, and so on and the names, it makes it easier. But there are, it's a really lovely story. So anyway, it's, it's wonderful <laughs> to know that the trip is worth it, making it all the way through War and Peace. And and yes, I second the yes, characters I, lists and, and to keep track of things for sure. Yes, I, I was commuting from just north of London, where I live into London at the time. And I read it standing up on the train and people used to talk to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew it would be a, a conversation, conversation starter? starter. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. 
So, well, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I've been working on um, a bit on Anne Boleyn. I, I wrote a short um, picture book on Anne, Anne Boleyn. I was I was asked to write it. And I've written, recently written a paper about Anne Boleyn and Henry and and the idea of Henry and his six wives and his lack of a male heir, which is a paper. I've got a website and a lot of the, these things can be found on there. But I suppose one of my great loves and interests is the influence of art on astronomy. I'd written on Michelangelo and the influence of cosmology on his work. And I'm, I've recently, actually last month in California, was at a conference on how astronomy inspires, you know, literature, the arts and everything. So I've been looking at that and looking at dark skies and the the how history of art which is my specialty how history of art can be used as evidence of how people were so interested in the stars and astronomy and the and the night sky and and now that's lost to many of us i've i've been given some talks on this recently those are fascinating resources. I can't wait to pick up a copy of your picture book on Anne Boleyn. That sounds fascinating. And <laughs> we will definitely link to Valerie's website and her books and publications so you can check out those and, and read them. So make sure you go to the show notes to find those. Valerie Shrimplin, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of Thomas Gresham and Gresham College. This has been a fun conversation, and I thank you for sharing the history with us. Thank you again for asking me. Bye-bye, everybody. If you enjoyed the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see pictures, paintings, and woodcuts that coordinate with today's episode, be sure to stop by the show notes. Inside the detailed show notes for our episodes is where we pack the bonus history information. You'll also find links to find out more about our guests, along with direct links to the resources they recommend you start with when you want to explore today's topic further. Find all of these things at castycash.com slash episode 239. That's castycash.com slash EP239. Before you go, I promised I would tell you more about our patrons area. Here at That Shakespeare Life, we are supported by our patrons on patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. And if you love learning history with us here each week, then you will really love our patrons area. Patrons get access to special bonuses like award-winning three-minute animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films that are donated by partnering history organizations just for supporters of our show, as well as the opportunity to have a hand in selecting the program programming for that Shakespeare life. And there's even a library of printable companion guides like history guides, printable sticker sets, and more that you can access just for supporting our show. Patron support is the backbone of our show and plays a vital role in helping us connect with great guests, bring you excellent historical research here each week. And patron support is the reason all of our episodes, along with the detailed show notes that go with each of those episodes, is available free anywhere in the world and all without any commercials. If you would like to be a part of supporting our work in history while also getting VIP access to our online community, then join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.